Hello, grit men, grit women, grit folks, however you identify, really don't care, just be gritty. Grit man here, and welcome to the Grit Men Show. Got a big show for you today, I'm really excited. We got Lance Berkman as our guest, and I think you're going to like it. I've wanted to have Lance on for a while, but I didn't just want to talk about home runs or all-star appearances. I wanted to go deeper and really dig into his grit story, and I had to apologize to Lance because I realized that I overlooked his grit. And I think sometimes we have a tendency to do that with people that appear to have success and it comes easy to them and we forget that success rarely happens by accident. And so we we dig into that and a lot more. I think you're going to like it, but I don't want to overhype it. I'm going to let you experience it for yourself. But first, let me tell you about a couple of our brand partners and and just know if I ever recommend you buy something, it's got to be quality and I want you to feel like it was money well spent. Kind of like Gus giving Lori 50 bucks. Similar, but different. Anyways, Chama chairs. They make two different outdoor chairs. You got the Pursuit and you got the Vaquero. I own both of them. The Pursuit is the 360 swivel. Great for dove hunting. Great for bow hunting. Uh, Check it out. The Vaquero is just classic rugged luxury. Folds up, easy to carry, very comfortable. Great for the backyard. Great for sitting around a tailgate or campfire. Chamachairs.com. Check it out. C-H-A-M-A chairs.com. And hey, what goes well when you're sitting out by a fire or you're tailgating or you're barbecuing, having a cold beer? Loud music. Loud quality music. Turtle Box Audio. Check them out. The loudest, toughest Bluetooth speaker on the market. Country music sounds really good on it. Rap, not so much. But check out Chamachairs. Turtle Box Audio. Use code GRIT, G-R-I-T, at checkout to unlock some special grit man savings. All right, let's get to our interview. Lance gave us such good material, we decided that we're going to break it into a two-part series. So this is episode one with Lance Bertman. I hope you like it. Enjoy. Guys, he's a lot like Nails. He plays like Nails. He's tough as Nails. He likes to call himself Grit Man, whatever that means. Quit with my dad. Well, Lance, welcome to the Grit Man Show. Thank you for taking the time to sit down with me. Oh, it's great to be here. I've enjoyed listening to some of the podcasts that I've heard previously, so I'm excited to actually be on it myself. Well, thanks. That's a good place to start. I'm going to jump right in because episode two, Phil Garner, Scrap Iron, he was your manager. And leading up to that interview, we played golf, and he told me a story about how you were one of the toughest players that he ever coached. And I said, tell me more. I know Lance is funny and very gifted, but I was surprised to hear him say that. And I've had to look and I have to, you know, I'm going to apologize to you because I think I overlooked your grit, Lance. <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, I think, you know, when if you kind of have a happy-go-lucky demeanor and you enjoy a, a good laugh, I think sometimes that, that can get overlooked. But, you know, I think just if you're going to compete at a high level, there there has to be a certain amount of, of grit involved. And you either have it innately or you learn to have it, you know, or else you don't survive. Well, I like to believe that it can be taught. Yeah, I do um, too. And, and hopefully that's what we're doing on this show is giving people examples and some hope to, that they can get grittier yeah. or find some. But back to Garner. So he told a story. He said, 
when they were transitioning you from, I guess, outfield to first base, mm-hmm. spring training, told Manzalino, what'd y'all call him? Doug, we call him Manzo, Doug Manzalino, yeah. He said he told Manzo to take you on one of the other fields and just wear you out with ground balls. And he came back and Manzo said that you wore him out. <laughs> what, what, what do you remember from that? Well, I just remember, you know, when during that time, I played a lot of first base, obviously, growing up and, and played at Rice my junior, kind of split time between the outfield and first base. But then, you know, when I got drafted by the Astros, they had Jeff Bagwell. So all my everything I did in the minor leagues and my first five, six years in the big leagues was geared towards being an outfield, never played first base. And so moving from the outfield back to first, the game really speeds up and especially at that level like you forget oh my gosh you know the ball gets on you quicker than you're used to and so I think part of that episode was me recognizing I, I need something like I got to have a ton of reps here if I'm going to not be embarrassed on the field and play the position as good as I feel like I should be able to play it and so um, you know Manzo's great and I just remember him and being on that backfield and just I, I just felt like, hey, I need I need a few more. Like I need to, to get into the rhythm of this. And a lot of times in spring training, you you, you sort of feel like you're up against it because you realize the regular season's right around the corner, and you don't have that much time to try to get into good playing shape and get up to the speed of the game, so to speak. So I think part of that session was born of desperation on my part. Like I know that I'm not quite ready, and I need you know additional reps to get ready. And so, uh, and it, it was more of a practical deal than like I'm gonna. I, there was never thought of like I'm gonna outlast this guy. It was more like oh my gosh, you know I better get ready Give to me play. Yeah, I need another yeah, one because <laughs> I got I gotta go. And so. Um, but yeah, that 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 was a great Gar, such an awesome manager. Enjoyed playing for him so much because he's a gritty guy, and like mm-hmm. when you're around guys like that, you kind of want to live up to the to the mode of operating that you see them demonstrate. And so uh, I think he had that effect on all of us just by being our manager. That's great. Let's stay in the big leagues. So he had a long career. Played for three teams. Four, Four. kind of. Yeah, I mean. Yeah. Houston for a while, and then got traded to the Yankees, Yankees, Cardinals, and then finished with the Rangers. Yeah, okay, forgot about the Rangers. So, yeah, but as you look back, is there any other stories that come to mind that where you displayed grit, either being a good teammate or working through a tough situation? Anything that comes to mind? Yeah, I mean, I think one of the toughest parts of my career was when I got traded from the Astros to the Yankees and you know I'm a Texas guy born in Central Texas and went to Rice and then got drafted by the Astros and it was kind of a storybook deal because I spent 12 years with with the Astros organization so when I came to Houston in the fall of 94 like I really never left until 2010 so you're talking about 16 years of being in the same place in the same organization around the same people and just very comfortable and then getting traded to the Yankees of all places which is like the, the antithesis of of southern hospitality right. you know you go in there and it's a very uh, abrupt environment and you just you know you can kind of feel the weight of expectation that's it's a world championship or bust you're learning new teammates one of the toughest things about it you know when you play at a certain place for a number of years you kind of the way I liken it is you sort of develop a bank account of big moments that you've been able to come through so like oh I got a big hit here I hit a big home run there and I had a lot of those moments when I was playing with the Astros so you kind of have this bank account set aside that if you don't come through then they're like oh yeah well but remember when he did this but when you go to a new team you have none of that like you're having to reestablish your credibility as a as a clutch player and those kind of things and I think that additional weight was not good and I and I you know that was the worst year of my career. I think I hit 240 something with Houston, which I'd really never hit below about 280. And then 
just to demonstrate that it wasn't a Houston thing, I ended up hitting about 240 with the Yankees and, and just never really got comfortable. Um, and it was a tough time for me personally and that I'm leaving this environment that I'm comfortable with and, and I'm going to this place. And so there was a lot of different, I, I really felt like I was in the big leagues all over again. Mm-hmm. And I just remember thinking, you know, not doing well and you got two choices, you know, you can either just curl into a ball and, and say, make it go away or you can go to work. And so I felt like I really went to work with, um, you know, with, with the Yankees hitting instructor, Kevin Long, who's one of the best hitting instructors in the game. And we, I would show up every day early, we'd hit in the cage. And I just remember working, 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 working. And I, and I remember telling myself, you may not be any good on the field, but nobody's going to outwork you. Like nobody's going to take more BP between now, which, you know, we only had like a two and a half month rest of the season to go. And kind of slowly, but surely I started to feel good again and ended up uh, my best time with the Yankees was in the playoffs so we in the NLDS had a really good game against the Twins and it, I, I kind of played myself into a platoon role even though I was a switch hitter they were only playing me against right-handed pitching so you know I, I didn't play every day but the chances I got to play I did really well like I had a really good NLDS and then in the in the I'm sorry ALDS and then in the in the ALCS we played the Rangers that year and I, we got beat in six games but I had a really good ALCS so kind of that the fruit of that labor showed up late towards the end of the year and even though it was a tough experience I really learned and was kind of proud like hey you know you didn't quit you didn't lay down you you know you you worked hard as you could and and you got some fruit of your labor and then I think largely because of that I was able to get a free agent deal with the Cardinals which then catapulted me into kind of the best year of my major league career when ending up winning the World Series so you know working through that tough time was was a was a one of the like major examples that I can think of in my career where hey this really you know you kind of work through it and and used grit and used determination to make something happen love that so I'm not going to go through all your career and throw out stats, but researching, I did find one year, 2001. It was a good year for you. Yeah. You you probably remember hitting 331, or mm-hmm. but do you recall getting hit by 13 pitches? Don't recall that, but well, uh, it was yeah. your you let it was your highest average in uh-huh. your career and your highest hit by pitches. So, yeah. I mean, what was going on? Don't don't know. Like I've never <laughs> I've never been scared of being hit by the ball. Like yeah. I just and. and Largely because I'm as a switch hitter, you're never in much jeopardy. Like you're always, you don't have to worry about the breaking ball that starts out at your head and then yeah. breaks over the low outside corner. But I do remember. It's funny you mention that because when as a young player, I remember we played a game where I think we were in Pittsburgh, and I had my first at bat. I got drilled. Like guy hit me, you know, and I I remember getting hit. It was pretty good, you know. It was one of that got me pretty solid. And I went down to first base. Then the next at bat, the first pitch, same pitcher, he threw a fastball on the low outside corner, and I like hit a double into left center. Mm-hmm. And I came back in, and Bagwell's like, "Dude, how? I mean, this guy drills you, and then he throws one kind of down and away, and you're diving out there to hit it. Like, mm-hmm. how how does that work?" And I just remember thinking, you know, I'm 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 more scared of making an out than I am of getting hit by the ball. And I tell young, you know, my I talk to parents sometimes, like, my kid's afraid of getting hit by the pitch. And I was like, that's normal. But when he becomes more scared of making an out than he does being hit by a pitch, that's when you know you have a baseball player. <laughs> yeah. So I, all I can say is, for me, it was like my hitting philosophy wasn't to hit home runs. It wasn't – I mean, it was like I'm not making an out. And, and I kind of visualized myself in that mode. So, you know, maybe that – 
that some of that and and to play my highest average year, my highest hit by pitch year, you know, where you're just really kind of hanging in there and and you know more focused on. Well, you lowered the denominator in your average. Yeah, right? see, so yeah, everybody yeah. focuses on the numerator. Right, you get hits, but if you can limit your number of bats, that's right. With your walks average goes and, up. Yeah, hundred percent. Right. So, so. I, mean, I, I got hit a lot, but not because I liked it. It was more because oh only hit singles well you, i always say if you can't hit get hit that's right. what i tell right. these guys yeah. you know so just figure out a way to get on base any way you can oh, anyway i just figured no one's probably ever asked you about your hit by pitches no, i, I wanted, I, I wanted to first, bring that up that's the first time i've ever been asked about it 2005 astro fans will remember there was a i guess it was the first time the astros went to the world series but in the national league championship series beat the cardinals but game six there was a um, a home run that astro fans will remember that Pujols hit I've heard you tell a story, and then I want to get into a topic. If you if you touch off not, I'll I'll bring us there. But can you tell a story about how maybe you thought that you were going to be the MVP? And yeah. Then- and in prayer and and, 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 yeah. and how it ended up well that the, you you mentioned it we the previous year the thing to remember the previous year in 2004 we had a great team and we had were playing the cardinals in the NLCS and we were up 3 games to 2 and then we were going into St. Louis having to win one of those two games to make it to the first world series in the Astros history and they ended up beating us twice so we lost both of those games well the next year here we are in 2005 and we're up three games to one, and we have a chance to close it out at home. And we were facing Chris Carpenter, and he was dealing, and it was a two-to-one game. They had the lead. We're going into the seventh inning. Somehow we get a couple guys on base, which I still don't know how because he was filthy that night. But we got guys on first and third, and and he threw me a a sinker down on the way, and I hit a line drive into the Crawford boxes for a three-run homer. Mm -hmm. And – it was absolute to, to that point you know you hear stories about people telling i hit this home run and i felt like i was never touched the ground i rounded the bases on air and that's what i felt like it was nuts i mean 50,000 people are screaming their heads off you know we have the best bullpen in the game now we have a two run lead like we're going to the world series and it's the first one in the history of of the astros and you know you could see people like starting to come down from the raptors to charge the field and i mean it was it was pandemonium and you're thinking i i mean i just hit the three run homer that put the astros in the world series for the first time ever so, but we still had to get six outs and so i remember going to first base and i was just i being a christian like i believe in prayer so i started praying lord just you know, if you could just let us get these last six outs, I promise in the post-game press conference, I'll give you all the glory for my three-run homer. You know, like I'll make sure that everybody knows that that's why I hit it. And so, you know, worked just fine in the in the eighth. And, and so now we're three outs away, and we go out there, and Lidge comes in, and I'm, Lord, just let us get these last three outs. Boom, we get two outs. Now we're one strike away, Lord. You know, and now literally people, like they are coming onto the field. And I'm sitting there going, you know, how am I going to handle this? I mean, is this going to be – and so – David Eckstein was the hitter, another guy with a ton of grit, and he, down to two strikes, ends up getting his bat on a ball, rolls a single through first, uh, short and third. And I was like, okay, no problem, man on first base. We still got a two-run lead. Next guy is Jim Edmonds, four-pitch walk. Now it's starting to get a little bit tight because here comes Albert Pujols at that time, and in my opinion, maybe the greatest hitter in the history of baseball. He's coming to the plate. And so Gar runs out to the mound, and we start, you know, like, hey, what do you want to do? And it's like, let's walk this guy because – they had Juan Encarnacion standing on deck, which no disrespect to him, but nobody even remembers who that is. And it's that was exactly my point. Like yeah. if he beats you, then okay, but you can't let the greatest hitter since Babe Ruth have a chance to 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 beat you right there. So 
He said, yeah, let's just pitch him tough. So Lidge, and I'm, now I'm praying like really hard, like, Lord, you know, let's get out of this. Come on now. Like we got this deal. And so Lidge throws a first pitch slider, and it was about a 40-footer. It didn't even make the dirt. And Albert swung at it, which was completely uncharacteristic. Like he never swung at a bad pitch, it seemed like. And so I'm thinking, oh, Lord, that's a great idea. Like strike him blind you know, just temporarily. But, you know, obviously like manipulate this event so that we can get out of this. Well, then the next pitch, Lidge throws a slider again. He hangs it. Albert hits the three-run homer that you're talking about. And that place went from as loud as you can possibly imagine to you could hear a pin drop. And I literally heard Albert's cleats digging into the dirt as he was rounding first base. And I was like, oh, my gosh. I mean, I can't believe this just happened. Lord, that's not the deal we had. Right. You know, that kind of thing. And just everybody was sick. We were just sick at our stomach because we felt like, we had the World Series in our grasp, and we just blew it. Now we're going to have to go back to St. Louis. Yeah. Same situation as last year, up three games to two. They're really tough at home. There's no guarantee. So we're sick about this, and we go after the game is over with. They got us, you know, they three up, three down in the night. They close it out, and now we're going back to St. Louis. And we're sitting there kind of getting packed up to go back to St. Louis. And somebody turns on the TV, and who's on TV giving God credit for his three-run homer? Albert Pujols, you know. <laughs> and so immediately I thought, okay, I get it. Like, Lord, you don't need me to get glory for yourself. Like, you yeah. can use whoever you want. So I learned a valuable lesson in that, and it ended up helping me, like, later on with the Cardinals. But Well, let's stop there. Yeah. I want to get to the Cardinals. Yeah. But, but let's talk about prayer and sports. Yeah. And I think sometimes Christians get a bad name. Sure. Because they, I mean, Coach Graham, I saw him use it sometimes. Like, it's a crutch, mm -hmm. right? Like you, God didn't want me to get a hit today, I guess. And, right. And, you know, and, and I've seen guys use it in business. Like, oh, it's, like God's will be done. Well, right. sometimes you got to put the effort in. 100%, yeah. And so, like, what are your thoughts on prayer and sports? Uh, I think, and, and this is a perfect example of, of where, like, when you're praying for a specific outcome, mm -hmm. uh, many times it's selfish. And I, I, I agree that there are a lot of – Christians that do use it as a crutch. And I don't think that, you know, I think God answers prayer, but I don't think he always answers it in the way we expect. And sometimes a no answer is an answer. And, yeah. and I think God is working in mysterious ways that we have no ability to comprehend or understand. And so, you know, to your point, I think it's our job, and the Bible is very clear about this, is that we are to be putting the effort in into whatever it is we're trying to do. You know, there's, there's one of my favorite passages, whatever your hand finds to do, do it with all your might. Like, mm -hmm. you have to put the effort in, and then God will direct you in that, in that, and you'll end up right where he wants you to be. I think of Paul in particular, who's, you know, wrote two-thirds of the New Testament, and Christianity wouldn't be what it is today were it not for the efforts of Paul. But there's three different times in Scripture where Paul wants to go to Asia to preach the gospel, and is on his way there, and God's like, you know, prevents him from going. So here you've got a guy that's that's been as connected to God as anybody that's ever walked the face of the earth, and he's praying earnestly, like, let me go to, which is a really good endeavor, right, to go share the gospel to where it's never been before, and yet for whatever reason, and the Bible never explains it, God prevents Paul from going and going to Asia. So here's a guy that has this connection, and yet he even he doesn't understand what's going on about three-quarters of the time, which I think that's the situation we find ourselves in. So for me, prayer, and especially in, in the realm of sports, you know, it never hurts to pray for different things, but we can't always expect that God's going to take our side in it or that he's even going to intervene in events, because I think there's many times that God chooses to not intervene. And for whatever reason, maybe we don't understand it and how this, you know, I learned a good lesson that day and it did help me. And, I'll, you know, the, there's sort of a sister story to this about another time in the World Series where... Go ahead and tell us about it. Yeah. So the fast forward after that episode where I really 
realize that, okay, maybe praying for my own glory is not the greatest way to go about this thing. Yeah. Um, we, we were, I was playing with the Cardinals. This is in 2011 after I'd been traded for the Yankees. You know, I got signed with, as a free agent with the Cardinals. We had a really good team. Now we're in the World Series against the Rangers, and we're locked in kind of an epic duel with them. And we're down three games to two coming back to St. Louis, and this is game six, which is some consider to be the greatest World Series game that's ever play, ever been played. The first part of that game was really sloppy. It was kind of a back-and-forth deal. Guys were making mistakes and ended up, you know, we're down by two runs in the ninth inning, and David Freeze hit a two-run triple to tie the game. Miracle. Like, you almost never happens. Um, and so – I got to back up a little bit. So before that game, normally in that lineup, Albert Pujols hit third, Matt Holiday hit fourth, I hit fifth. Well, Matt had slid back into a base and jammed his finger, so he wasn't swinging the bat great. And so Tony Larusa, the manager, came to me and said, "Hey, I'm going to flip you, flip flop you and Matt in the lineup. Like you're going to hit fourth, and Matt's going to hit fifth. And on top of that, in game three, Albert Pujols had hit three homers in game three. So he became the third guy. Babe Ruth, Reggie Jackson, and Albert Pujols hit three homers in a World Series game. And from that point forward, it was clear the Rangers' strategy was anybody but Pujols. Like, we're not pitching to this guy. Whoever's behind him is going to have to be the one to beat us. And so I knew that since I was hitting fourth behind Albert, like, I'm going to be the guy that they're going to make beat him. Like, I'm going to be in the grease. There's no doubt about it. So... Between game five and six, we had an extra off day. Normally, you have one travel off day, but there was a rainout. So we had two off days, and that's the worst thing when you're playing in those playoff games is the days off where you're just thinking about all the things that could go wrong. So I start praying, and I'm like, Lord, if I get into a situation that's a big spot, like don't let me be overwhelmed by the moment. Help me to be able to focus. Help me to be able to concentrate with the ability that you've given me. Let me be able to compete well period, and be good with the outcome, whatever it is. I mean, literally, that was my prayer for like two days. So here we are in game six. We've made one miracle comeback. In the 10th inning, Josh Hamilton hits a two-run homer to put the Rangers back up by two runs, and now we're going to have to overcome another two-run deficit. We've done it once in the ninth. We're going to have to do it again in the 10th if we want to prolong the series. So I was. I remember standing in right field when Hamilton hit the homer, and I remember thinking, "Oh, well, you know, we had a good run. Like the Rangers deserve it. They have a great team. You think the World Series is over with?" And then I looked up at the big board and I realized, "Oh, I'm the sixth hitter due up. Even though I was hitting fourth in the lineup, we were eight, nine, and then one, two, three. So I was going to be the sixth hitter up." And I thought, "Oh man, you know, like." A lot of times, if you're the sixth hitter in the inning, you're not going to get up. But if you do, it's likely going to be with runners in scoring position. Yeah, two outs. I mean, late. And I thought, this is it. I just knew that this was going to happen. And so, sure enough, we come back in the dugout. We go base hit, base hit to start the 10th inning. Bunt them over, second and third. RBI ground out, gets one run in, leaves a runner at second base. Here comes Albert to the plate, and they weren't going to pitch to him. Like before he even got the donut off his bat, the catcher's already standing up, you know, calling for four balls. And I go to the on deck circle. I'm like, um, I can't even. You've heard of butterflies. I mean, I had pterodactyls because now you got you have fifty thousand Cardinal fans. They're on their feet. They're screaming. They're praying. They're doing all this. And I was a nervous wreck. And so as soon as I, I just remember taking the donut off the bat. And as soon as that donut hit the ground, and I took a step out of that on deck circle. It was like, all right, let's do this. And a calm that I cannot, I mean, it was it was eerie. Like, I've never been more concentrated. I've never been more calm in a big spot. And I just remember thinking about nothing. It was like the thing went blank. Like, there was no distractions. I mean, I was in the box with perfect concentration, something Coach Graham sometimes would talk about. But I experienced it. It was like, 
I'm talking about no thought but the baseball. And that's all I was thinking about. And so ended up, got down to two strikes, and you know the guy made a good pitch, and he threw a cutter in, and I was able to kind of redirect it back up the middle for a single and tied the game. And then we ended up winning in the 11th. David Freeze hit a walk-off homer. Um, but there's no doubt in my mind that God answered my prayer that time. And I'm not, you know, I don't think that he's made me get a base hit, but I know that he helped me control my emotion and to be into a a good competitive mindset. And so, you know, I think about those two times in dramatic fashion where I was, you know, quote unquote, using prayer for my benefit. Mm -hmm. One, the motivation was totally selfish. Like I want to get all the glory. Like I want to be the guy. The second time it was just a, a much more humble approach. Like, you know, Lord, you've given me this ability and the let, just just let me use it like let me use my ability that you gave me and, and whatever the outcome is i'm good with it and i would yeah. like to think that if i'd struck out or popped up or something that it would be the same but it was great that we ended up you know winning the world series and that makes makes for a cool story so i can't explain it but i do know that god answered that prayer um because it was an overwhelming situation and i was able to kind of bring it back it. Yeah. yeah no that's good i think the Praying for wins and losses. Like if we were to play ping pong, you know, and I prayed, Lord, help me beat Lance. Mm-hmm. You, you prayed, you know, help me beat Chris. Well, one of us can be disappointed. Right, that's right. Yeah, and, and you go know, like, well, he must have done this or that. But that, that's yeah. – Did Lance pray better than yeah, I Yeah, no. I, I just – that's not how God operates. And yeah. that's not – like most people that have a have a problem with that or have a notion that, you know, somehow Christianity makes you weaker or it's not – they, they have never really read the Bible. I mean, if you read the Bible, you're like, I mean, if you're a Christian, you ought to be a dude because you look at all the guys that God really used in Scripture, David, you know, Paul, guys like, I mean, this guy's been shipwrecked, snake bit, you know, beaten, flogged, thrown in prison. Like, yeah. these are real dudes. You want to talk about grit. I mean, yeah. you know, Christ himself, like, this guy goes in there and clears a whole temple. Can you imagine that? Like, think about this. Like, you, you go to a church and they've got a bazaar set up in the church and you've got all these different people and these leaders and and you're able single-handedly one guy with with a with a whip to clear that building i mean that's a dude yeah. and so the christianity ought to inspire its adherents to more effort more grit more perform like just you know instead of less and and so i think that's one thing that has been misunderstood about christianity and its mm-hmm. adherents um, mostly because a lot of the people that that are claiming Christ or, or not necessarily behaving like Christ. And mm-hmm. I think that's that's where people have a problem. Yeah, I don't, and I don't know where the perception of Jesus being weak came from, maybe turn the other cheek. Mm-hmm. But I mean, I don't know if I heard you say it or somebody, but as a Christian, and if you were going to slide in hard to second base, you were going to do it because it's just the way to play. 100%. Yeah. Knock that guy into the outfield. Right. <laughs> you know, like go as hard as you can. And not, to me, that's what... That's what the parable of the talents is all about. When Jesus told that parable, he's like, you know, you've been given different talents and abilities. Everybody has. It doesn't necessarily have to be baseball. It could be in any realm. But you've you've not gotten those on your own. Like there have been people that have helped you along the way. You have God-given proclivities one way or the other and, and natural latent talents and abilities that you – it's your responsibility to develop those. And if you don't do that – you're not doing your job to your point of putting in the effort. So mm-hmm. the work ethic ought to be second to none. The effort ought to be second to none. The you know the standard of excellence in your performance ought to be second to none. So if mm-hmm. there's a job to do, 
breaking up a double play, then I ought to be doing that as hard as I possibly can so that there is no way they can turn that double play. Right. That should be your motivation. And, you know, sadly, sometimes it's not. Yeah. Uh, that's some good stuff. So let's, uh, let's move away from the big leagues. Yeah. Let's, let's go back to your childhood. Grew up in New Braunfels. So well, Central Texas? Yeah, but... I, I, I kind of claim anywhere in Central Texas because I was born in Waco. Okay. Then we moved to Austin, and I lived there. I'd probably say that's where I did most of my growing up because I, from 6 to 16, we lived in Austin. And then my dad, who's an attorney, he was working for a law firm in Austin, and they opened a branch in San Antonio. So we moved down to San Antonio and ended up in New Braunfels Canyon my last two years of high school. Okay. Uh, so I will claim my whole family's from Georgetown, so it's like anywhere on that I-35 corridor yeah. from Waco to San Antonio – I consider that to be kind of my home. So. so, so growing up, did you play multiple sports? Were you outdoors? What what type yeah, of kid were you? I, I played everything growing up. I mean, I was back. You know, back then, that's what most people did. If you're a right. decent athlete, you know, you played football, basketball, baseball, all three. And when I got to, I played a lot of soccer actually growing up. Also, my dad wasn't a big football guy. He didn't want he didn't want me to play football because he was a baseball guy and didn't okay. want me to get hurt. But I wanted to play football, so he you know I, he did relented. You play, high, you play high school? I did. Football? I played. I didn't play. I played my sophomore and junior year. So I didn't play my freshman year because I wanted to try to make the varsity baseball team. And then I didn't play my senior year because I'd signed with Rice. And, yeah. you know, the writing was kind of on the wall that my future was going to be in baseball, not football. And so at that point it became, you know, kind of a, a practical uh, decision to not play. But enjoyed playing football. Really think that I love guys that when I'm now as a coach, when I recruit guys, I love guys that play high school football because mm-hmm. there is a physicality and a different kind of competitiveness because of that physicality that you learn from playing football that you don't get anywhere else. Mm So I like guys that that play because they do tend to be a little bit physically tougher than the baseball-only guys. Did you have access to hunt and fish growing up, or, or not, did you my, yeah, develop I mean, that later? Yeah, mostly later. Mm-hmm. Uh, I did. My uncle, my dad's not a hunter or a fisherman. He likes mm-hmm. to play golf, and he's a huge baseball guy. But I have a couple uncles that really love to hunt. So when when I was thirteen, I remember you know my uncle started hunting, so I started hunting with him from thirteen on. Uh, but really got into that more as I got older. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, and I've always enjoyed being outside. You know, love any kind of outdoor pursuit. Um, with hunting, do, would you more big game? Or yeah, mostly bird deer. Hunting? Yeah, what, what do you enjoy? <laughs> Dove and deer is what I did mostly growing yeah. up, and that's probably if I had to pick the two, that's what I enjoy the most. Is if I'm going to bird hunt, I love to dove hunt, yeah. even though I'm terrible at it. But uh, and it's, I, you know, I love to bow hunt. You don't have to be quiet. Yeah. No, yeah, you just you can <laughs> talk and you know yeah. all that. But um, I've done some, you know, since I've quit playing baseball, I've been on three different sheep hunts, which. That is a real hunt. Like if you want to really hunt, yeah. go try to kill a you know a doll sheep or a, a stone sheep. The stone sheep hunt we went on is probably the hardest thing I've ever done physically. Um, Where was know, it at? That was in northern British Columbia, okay. and you're basically climbing. You're basically climbing mountains with a rifle, you know, in hopes that you're gonna you know run across a sheep. And there's eight hour horseback rides that are interspersed in there, which takes a physical toll out of you um and you know we killed a grizzly bear in our camp i mean so like you're not you're not sleeping you're you know you're climbing mountains every day you're riding horse i mean it is literally and then when i tell you there is there's no hope for rescue i mean it's you know you're that's it there's no roads there's no way to get to you i mean you are in the back of beyond and you you know you're kind of like depending on your own resources and the people that you're with 
little different than sitting in a blind and a wait, waiting different. for the feeder to go off. I remember, like, you know, when I was a kid, I used to be a little bit nervous walking into a deer blind, you know, in the early morning before yeah. it was before it was light. But after being on one of these sheep hunts, I mean, I will I will walk buck naked through South Texas and not even think twice about it. I mean, when you when you feel like you know when you've been where hey, a grizzly bear could come eat me in my tent in the middle of the night. All this other stuff in Texas kind of seems like small potatoes, but it, it, it definitely will change your perspective. Let's go back to high school. You said that uh, you didn't play high school, you didn't play football your senior year because you'd signed with Rice. Mm-hmm. So let's talk about that for a little bit. Were you a big recruit? Did you have a lot of options, and, and how'd you get to Rice? Yeah, I, I wasn't a big recruit. Um, of course, back in those days, there wasn't near the information available now, and of course, the the summer ball circuit wasn't as extensive as it is now. When when I was playing in high school, there was really about three decent summer league teams in the whole state. I mean, mm-hmm. you had like the Dallas Mustangs, and you had Kyle Chapman here in Houston, right. and we I played for Austin Slam, and I think there was a team or two out of San Antonio that was pretty good. But outside of that, I mean, I, I remember Burke Burdett, which is a city up uh, north of Dallas up there. They had a good team. Um, and it was like, you know, you played the same guys because there was really only a handful of teams. Now you've got hundreds of teams and everybody's got video and everybody's got a perfect game profile and everybody's got all this information. But back then it was like if you didn't get seen by a scout or a college recruiter, you know, you just kind of could slip through the cracks. And so in the defense of – the college recruiter like I didn't really have a great high school season I had solid high school seasons until I got to be a senior but by Mm -hmm. that time I already signed with Rice so um, you know playing in the summer I I was seen by a guy named Randy Taylor who is a friend of Coach Graham's and Coach Graham was looking for a left-handed hitter and and so Randy called him and said hey there's a kid here at New Braunfels that you really need to sign you know and coach graham said well, this is according to coach graham yeah. he said well what you know is he can he run he's like oh he runs all right and, you know does he can he can he feel great well he feels okay you know like what does he do and he's like he can hit yeah. and and so coach graham without having seen me play had me down and and they offered me a scholarship and I signed I mean my recruiting visit was my dad and I drove down and uh, Joseph Kathy who was a shortstop for us he showed me around campus while my dad talked to coach Noble who was ended up being the head coach at U of H and yep. Uh, then we came back and they said, well, we want you to sign a scholarship. So I signed right there on the steps of the old stadium, which, you know, was yep. <laughs> no great shakes. And that was it. We drove back home and I was like, well, I'm a rice owl. So uh, I didn't really get recruited by anybody else. I mean, Memphis had reached out because I'd played in a tournament in Tennessee and, and the Memphis head coach had seen me there. Uh, but that was it. So that, those were my two options. And, you know, I, I was excited about rice because that was right before – they started kind of the upswing, and mm-hmm. I knew Coach Graham by reputation from coming from San Jacinto as a winning coach. And they had Jose Cruz Jr., who was coming off an All American campaign. He was going to be a number one or, you know, first round pick. Yep. Uh, so there were some good things happening, and I felt like it was a place where I could play. And right. that was the most important thing to me was just getting an opportunity to get on the field. And, and so it turned out to be the best thing I ever did. Yeah, you were there at the time where, where Coach Graham, I think he came 92 maybe. Yeah, I was on his third team, I yeah. think I figured so out. He had, so he had started to change the culture mm-hmm. and, and weren't the you know, dwellers of the Southwest yeah. Conference, right? So yeah. You, but did you did you think you would have a chance to go to Omaha when you came to Rice? Didn't really think that far ahead. Like yep. It really wasn't something that – I was just happy to get a chance to play in college. Now, when I got to Rice, very quickly thereafter, you realize that – 
you know, this is about winning baseball games. Yep. And so I think the coolest thing for me was I was there early enough in Coach Graham's tenure where there were still some holdovers from the previous regime and yep. there was still some of that mentality that you're talking about that Coach Graham was turning. And so I got to see the process of going from where Rice was to then by the time I left as a junior, we had been to the College World Series. So, mm-hmm. you know, watching Coach – and, and again, some of this is retrospective because at the time you're going through it, you don't realize what he's doing. But having th- thought back about my experiences there, I recognize like, okay, this is what he was doing. This is how he was doing it. And he, he radically changed the way that we thought about ourselves. And, and I remember as a freshman hoping that we could beat Texas and going in, you know, when you go to College Station, like you hope you, you beat the Aggies. By the time I was a junior, we were like, we are going to murder these guys. Like, I cannot wait to play these guys because we are going to, I mean, you know, like we just had that swagger. And Mm -hmm. a lot of it had to do with having about four guys on the team that ended up playing in the big league. So we were good. But the mentality change that took place from the time I was a freshman to the time I was a junior was was dramatic. I've heard you say that two of your most influential um, role models or or not really, it could be role models or men in your life in terms of your baseball career would be your dad and Coach Graham. Yeah. Uh, you want to talk about Coach Graham a little bit? Yeah, I mean, and, you know, dad, I would say just briefly, you know, I always say if, when people ask me about it, I, 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 my dad's the one that got me started playing the game. You know, the thing I appreciated most about dad was it wasn't just about hitting, it was about the total game. Like he wanted me to be a baseball player, not mm-hmm. just a good hitter. And then, you know, when I got to Rice – Coach Graham sort of took over and really helped me change my mentality. And you know, being the Grit Man podcast, mm-hmm. like that is the the core of his message is you got to get gritty. Like you got to be tough right. to be successful in this game. And the great thing for me with Coach was he had had tremendous playing experience. Like not mm-hmm. only is he a coach, but I mean he had been in AAA for a long time and oh. had made it to the big leagues briefly. So he recognized. If you're going to be a successful pro, like there is a certain mentality that you absolutely have to have, and he was great at getting us to get into that competitive mode. And so, um, you know, Coach Graham was hugely instrumental in me making that transformation, kind of going from boyhood to manhood, mm-hmm. and it wasn't an easy process at times. I mean, he was very, very tough to play for at times, um, and just demanded what seemed like an unachievable or an unattainable level of performance. But I think because he continued to push, 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 we ended up being better than even we thought we could be. And so you asked earlier, like, did I think that we were going to go to Omaha? No, not like coming in. That wasn't even a blip on the radar. But by the time I left there, that was the only thing that mattered. And it was like, we can do it. And so um, Coach made us believe that. And and it was crazy because it was almost like through the process of wearing some of those verbal, you know, uh, abuse sessions or whatever you want to call it. But through that process, he was molding us and making us and getting every one of our guys to get tough, to believe that we could do it and that conditions don't matter. Umpires don't matter. Nothing matters. Like we're rice and we're going to beat your butt. I mean, that was kind of how he molded us. No excuses. No excuses. And even when you had a legitimate excuse, it wasn't an excuse, you know, and didn't tolerate any of that. So, um, you know, he, he would do things like I remember my sophomore year, I was having a really good year and 
he called me into his office and basically we had a meeting where he he chronicled every other first baseman in the Southwest Conference and explained why they were a better player than I was. So he started the meeting by sitting me down and very calmly said, I just want to let you know that you're the worst first baseman of the Southwest Conference. And I was like... This is during the season? D- during the season. Okay. And during the season where I hit almost 400 with 20 homers like I was having a great year and he just wanted to let me know that you're not as good as you think you are like you think you're good but you can be even better is ended up being the you know the the turned out you could yeah you could not a could you can hit more than 20 homers yeah and so (laughs) that that's the kind of thing where you're just like if I had a player that was doing that well I probably would just leave him alone but coach Graham wasn't content to do that like he knew that there was maybe a little bit more in the tank and he knew he could get it out of me and so that whole meeting and I just remember walking out out of there going the heck is going on here you know like this guy what do i have to do to prove that i'm a good player and it kind of you know it rankled me a little bit and being a competitor i was like i'm going to show this guy and i think that's exactly the response that he wanted and knew he knew how to get it from me so in many ways coach graham's a genius in being able to read people not that he doesn't make mistakes in that he does some but but he's able to read people and understand like get them to understand how much better they can be. And I, and I mm-hmm. try to get, you know, that's one thing I tried to adopt in my own coaching style is to raise the level of expectation. And so, you know, even if you're a really good player, like, don't be satisfied with that. There's a another level that you can get to yeah. if you'll drive yourself. And sometimes we need others to help us get there. Like, that was Coach Graham's role was to drive us to that level that only we could, you know, the only way we could get there is if he drove us to it. And so I always tell, I tell people all the time, you know, you can run pretty fast if you're running for a reward like an ice cream cone or a hundred dollars, but you can run even faster if a German Shepherd's chasing you. Like <laughs> if you're running for your life, that's when you're going to get the most out of you. Yeah. And Coach Graham had us all running for our lives when we were playing for him. Yeah, he did. So one thing that, you know, I get asked a lot, what was Coach Graham like, or or what would was his best talent and, and as I've stepped back and analyzed and done these podcasts without a doubt he was able to find these diamonds in the rough like mm-hmm. guys that had talent but maybe were overlooked but were able to come there and get better and then leave Rice his first round draft choice you know yeah. and there's a lot of them I mean would would you agree with that diamond in the rough a hundred percent I think I think he you know and it, it's again it's increasingly more difficult to find those diamonds in the rough because there's not yeah. much rough anymore and are they still you out know? there right yeah like because rice needs them hb needs well them. <laughs> but they get they get found like so yeah. the the guys that have really good physical ability there's no like hiding that anymore you know there's too many metrics there's too much video and that, that, that i'm painting with a broad brush i mean yeah. there's an occasionally a late bloomer a guy that will you know like oh that guy developed. a jeff neiman yeah kind of okay. like that but I think where Coach Graham's real genius was he he trusted the right people. So he had some – first of all, Coach Graham has a great eye for talent himself, but he also allied himself with other people that had a good eye for talent, i.e. Randy Taylor, and he mm-hmm. trusted those people. And so once he has the raw material, then that's when he would take over. And I think the, the biggest difference you know, between Coach Graham and maybe some other coaches is you know, I don't remember Coach Graham teaching me much about the baseball swing, but I can remember – a hundred different psychological lessons that he taught me that helped me, you know, so he takes a guy that has the the physical stuff and then puts the mental stuff, the grit, the determination, the focus, all of those things, the raising the level of expectation and performance, and he makes that kind of who you are. Mm-hmm. And so I think that's why you were able to see so many guys come through that program that 
you know, sort of came in unheralded, but then they left as first round picks, and yeah. and I think that's that's how he was able to do that. Did you play with Matt Anderson? Oh yeah, he was my he we, he and I came in together as freshmen, okay. so we were in the same class. Was he first pick overall? Yeah, first yeah. number one overall pick. And I don't think he was recruited that high. Mm-hmm. I just remember, and what crazy thing about Matt, like when he came in, I'll never forget it. Freshman fall, he was throwing eighty eight miles an hour, eighty eight, and touching a ninety every once in a while. When we came back in the spring, he was like 90 to 92. By the end of that spring, he was up to 94. It was like he added two miles an hour every couple of months, you know, and I'm not sure, you know, and, that, and that's, this is where, like, Coach Graham probably had a lot to do with that, and he fooled with the pitchers a lot, but they were kind of separate. So, you know, like when you're there, the position players are doing their deal, the pitchers are off doing their bullpen stuff, or whatever. You don't really, like, I didn't have a, fr- a front row seat to see what he was doing with, with Matt that maybe got the most out of him physically, but undoubtedly he's a great example of somebody that came in under the radar and then was the number one, one overall pick. And some of that, you know, it's kind of luck of the draw. Like how many guys come in at 88 and leave throwing 102? I mean, that, there's some there's some physical component to that of maturation that you can't necessarily you have to have a crystal ball to see that. But I do know that, that Coach Graham was instrumental in his development as well. Yeah. Let's tell some Coach Graham stories. Let's do it because they're the greatest. They are. <laughs> we could we could make a whole podcast. What uh, you want you lead us off, and if you get tired, pitch me one. I'll tell one. Well, uh, so my freshman year, there there's a you know that was probably the year that he was the hardest on me, yeah. and it was like still changing culture. Yeah, right? still changing the culture, and the, just stuff that you just go wait a minute. And and looking back on it, I mean, I was I was immature for sure, and I needed to be road hurt on, so to speak. And he was more than willing to do that. But one of the first Coach Graham stories I remember was we were playing A and M back back then. Of course, we were in Southwest Conference, and they had this uh, U of H open their new facility at that time, and they they had a. Southwest Conference first pitch tournament. So they were conference games, and you played kind of a round robin. They counted for your conference schedule, but it was at the beginning of the conference season, and then you kind of went on from there. So if you played somebody in that first pitch tournament, you would have a three-game series with them in the conference season. If you pl- if you didn't play them, you had a four-game series. So it's an equal number of games, but that's what the deal was. So we were playing A&M. And back, you know, when I was a freshman, it was still kind of a big deal to beat them because they were a huge school. We were a little bitty rice. And, I mean, we are putting it on them. I mean, I'm talking about, you know, I think we ended up winning 15 to 6 or something like that. Just murdered them. And my first four at-bats, I hit for the cycle. So I went, you know, like single, homer, triple, double. or no, uh, But the triple was the last one I needed. So I went like single homer double and then i hit a triple and i slid into third base and at this point we're up you know eight nine runs and i was so excited that i had the cycle and you know we're and i popped up and i was like coach that's the cycle you know (laughs) and he just he looked at me and then just turned around like didn't say anything (laughs) like no facial expression i was like well maybe i shouldn't have said that well turns out I ended up be almost becoming the first man in the history of baseball to hit for the cycle and have the hat trick in the same game. So we beat him so badly, I had seven at-bats. My next two at-bats, I struck out. So now I'm four for six. And my third at-bat, uh, after the cycle, I'm 0-2 and ended up hitting the weakest jam shot line drive back to the pitcher. I mean, I think he barehanded it. You know, I hit it back to him. He was just like, caught it, barehanded. Anyway... I was obviously disappointed in those last three at bats, but because I'd hit for the cycle and we won big, I'm thinking, hey, you Four know, for seven, not bad, right? And we're it's rainbows and unicorns. <laughs> well, 
he gets us out in the parking lot and sits the team down and I mean airs us out like the whole team and we're I just remember looking around like is this did we get beat 15 to 6 or did we win and then he gets to me about you know the cycle and he airs me out he's like I just want all you guys to know that Berkman quit on the team today he got his cycle and then he was satisfied with that and I mean for like 15 minutes talked about how I quit on the team, I'm untrustworthy, you know, that's not the kind of player that we need in this program. And I just, by the time he got done with me, I felt like I was about an inch tall, you know, and and being a freshman, and I was really the only freshman that was playing. uh, And of course, you have all these upperclassmen, that team was loaded with upperclassmen. So I just remember feeling like, oh my gosh, like, I'll never do that again. Like, I'll never hit for the cycle again. I mean, if I do, I'll never say a word to anybody, you know, just keep it to yourself. And the, looking back on that, of course, the message is you got you can't be satisfied. Like you got to keep grinding. And of course, I felt like I mean I didn't want to strike out twice, but maybe my concentration did lapse a little bit because we were up big and and because I'd already gotten four hits. I don't know, but I just remember that making such a huge impression on me and and scratching my head afterwards, going, "What did I? I mean, did I did I do wrong? I mean, it was it was it was bizarre, but message received. Another t- another thing that happened that year, we were playing Baylor in the conference schedule and we had a double header and we the first game was seven innings and it was like a thousand degrees you know it was on it was at in, in Waco it was right on the Brazos and it was so humid and hot and we ended up getting beat 21 to 18 in the seven inning game so it was a four hour seven inning game and of course because we scored 18 runs and I hit fifth in the lineup I think I was like I think I had like five or six ribbies. I know I had three hits at least. I mean, I had a really good game offensively, but it was 18 to 18, and our first baseman, Paul Doyle, uh, would sometimes pitch. And so, of course, in that game, like we're looking for pitching, they br- and when he would go into pitch, I would come in from left field and play first base. And so they took like the sixth inning, they, they brought him in to pitch. I come in to play first base. They get the Baylor gets a guy on first. I'm holding the runner, left-handed hitter. Guy hits an absolute missile. I mean, as hard as you can possibly hit a ground ball. And in my brain, I felt like I did everything short of laying down in front of this ball to keep it from getting by me. But somehow it got under my glove and went into the outfield. And that ended up being the, the I guess they gave it an error, the error that led to their three-run three winning rally. And so we ended up getting beat 21-18. to 18. And he calls us down the line, and he start, you know, and he's yelling at everybody. You know, you've like when when the, when those type of things happen, you just pray that you that you get yelled at like at the front end of the meeting because right. then it's he's not quite as worked up, <laughs> and so he's yelling at everybody. And of course, when you give up twenty one runs, I mean, the pitching staff got got the brunt of that. But in my, I, I'm not even thinking that I'm in any jeopardy whatsoever because I've drove in five or six runs. Yeah. I'm sitting Indian style in the front of the meeting. And he, it was like he, he finished screaming, and then he got like eerily calm, like that psycho calm. That's almost I'd rather him yell, like than be the calm kind of smile, like ha, ah, you know, Berkman. <laughs> and he goes, Mister Berkman. And I was like, Oh my gosh, like I didn't even know what I had done. And he goes, Mister Berkman, let me ask you a question. Have you ever read the Scarlet Letter? And I was like. Well, that's kind of a bizarre, but yeah, I mean, I've read The Scarlet Letter, and he said, well, for those of you idiots that haven't read The Scarlet Letter, in the story, there's a woman 
It's a book, and in the story, there's a woman, and she commits adultery, and the townsfolk get together, and they sew a big red letter A on the front of all of her dresses because they want everyone to know that she's an adulteress. Well, Mr. Berkman, I'm going to petition the NCAA to see if they'll let me sew a big red letter C on the front of your jersey because you're nothing but a coward! (laughs) And I mean... I was like flabbergasted and just, you know, stunned. And then he starts yelling at me about how do you let that ball get through you and you got to stop it. And by the time that I was, again, sitting Indian style in the front of this thing and my head kept getting lower and lower, Coach Graham got down on hands and knees so he could scream up into my face underneath my hat brim. I mean, that's, that's where, and at this point, like the other game is fixing to start. We've been, he's been yelling at us for 20 minutes. We've got 30 minutes in between games. So by the time he got done with it, it was like, okay, you know, batter up for the next game. I, I just remember my head spinning. Like I, I, I couldn't comprehend it, but that's one of my favorites is the scarlet letter speech that he gave. Did and, y'all win the second game? Uh, I think we did. Okay. I think we did win the second game. Yeah. I, I don't, I, honestly, like I'm so flustered. I can't even remember, but maybe the, did you get a C mate still for captain? No, no captains. <laughs> I mean, it was coward. You are a coward. So th- those are those are a couple of good ones from yeah. my freshman year. Well, get you a drink of water. I'll tell one. So my sophomore year, which was my first year at Rice, we are playing out in Hawaii. And it was early in the year. I just wanted to play. And I think I was a leadoff DH, which sounded cool. Like, I just hit. I don't have to play defense. And I came up the third inning. And the, I was batting second in that inning. And the leadoff guy, I don't know who it was, Ruckty, maybe got a double. And so I'm coming up. And you probably didn't think like this because you were hit for power. You're just gonna, you come up, nobody out, guy on second, you're going to drive the guy in, right? Well, no one but bunt coverages. I could tell the third baseman was playing back. And I'm like, I can put a bunt down the third base line. The pitcher's probably going to have to get over there. He ain't going to be able to get it. We'll get a guy on third. I'll get a cheap hit. Well, you know, helps the team. So on my own, I try to drag bunt, and it's great. But it goes, and it just rolls foul right at the end. And I'm running back, and as I'm running back to the box, I look down at third. He's like, get over here. So I have to run down to third base. He chews on me. Gosh darn it. He didn't say that. Right. He's like, yeah. you don't bunt unless I tell you to bunt. Now get in there and get a hit. So I go back, and I look at my signal, and he gives me the bunt sign. <laughs> <laughs> and now I'm like, did I miss the sign? Surely he wouldn't have given the Time out. So I, and I have a decision to make. Yeah. Do, do I go ask the guy right. and get chewed again? But I didn't want to like miss the sign. So I run to my, hey, coach, uh, I could have sworn he just gave me the bunt, bunt sign. Like, You're damn right I gave you the bunt sign. Get it down. <laughs> so, Get the butt down. Anyway, it was just a sack, so throw me out at first. I don't know if we scored or not, but I learned the problem with DH was I couldn't get my glove and run out to the field and get away from the old man. I had to stay there. That's right. And so he comes in, cool course, get down here. The whole inning, I don't even think he watched us. He just chewed on me. Yeah. You're the worst player I've ever seen. I don't know who taught you how to play. You're the worst I've ever seen. And all I could say was, yes, sir. Yeah, you're the worst recruiting mistake I've ever made. Yeah, That's well, what I he used to drop recruit, on. So, but, yeah. he, but he knew that. Yeah. I respected my dad, uh-huh. and me and dad were close, and like that was his way he was going to get under my yeah. skin. Mm-hmm. But yeah, no, he, yeah. he he did that stuff all the time. Matter of fact, one, even when you did play a position again, my freshman year, parents' weekend, yeah. something happened. That he so I had a hard time. You know, the signs are super complicated. At least yes. when I was there, like he had to add and subtract. I mean, he had like a hot zone, and one hand was plus, and one hand was minus, and yeah. you had to watch him, and you had to add two minus one, and then that means one, and so one is this. I had a hard time with the signs. I'm not going to lie to you. My yeah. freshman year, so a lot of times because they was, were hard, they were hard, and I was just guessing. <laughs> yeah. And so I remember I got I got 
uh, I thought I was on first base and I thought I saw, I was like, that's either the hit and run or the steal. So either way I'm running. So I, I run, I get thrown out at second to end the inning and he didn't want me to run. Like I'd missed the sign. So he called me the Ricky Henderson of New Braunfels. He was like, you think you're the Ricky Henderson of New Braunfels? Why would I have you run right there? And, you know, and if you can't get these signs, here's what we're going to do. I'm going to, you're going to make up a set of signs and you give them to me and then I'll shake my head yes or no if I want to do that. And I mean, he's like screaming at me. Well, it's parents weekend. The inning is over with. We're on defense. Our pitcher has warmed up. The catcher's thrown the ball down the second base. They've thrown it around. The pitcher now has the ball. Their hitter is in the batter box and he's still screaming at me I got to go play left field and so finally the umpire walks over there and he said Wayne either take him out of the game or let him go to his position we got to start the inning so he's like get out of here so now I have to run by myself you know in front of all the parents there was like tons of people there and the other team run all the way out to left field you know by myself they're waiting on me to start the inning so it just compounded my embarrassment of of you know getting thrown out and him screaming at me so he's not afraid to for the prolonged butt chewing he was really good at that oh, he's a pro yeah hey guys thank you all for listening tune into part two with lance burtman where he tells more hilarious coach graham stories we debate whether or not he is fat and go over the secret to two strike hitting Do me a favor, check out Chama Chairs and Turtle Box Audio. Talk to you soon.